and each one of us had a, a six foot model with fishnet nylon, fishnet stockings, a big basque, whiskers, and a tiger's tail. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we sat up on the back seat of the car with a with a driver, each of us, um, with our arm around this model, and took off towards Manhattan with a motorcycle escort in a wailing siren. It was hilarious. Hello and welcome to episode 63 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. I'm Paul Stevenson. Thanks as always for hitting play. Now, my guest on this week's show is another Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, one of the early inductees, having been inducted the same year as Elton John, Sir Rod Stewart, Bob Marley, John Lennon and The Grateful Dead. What a class that was. Now, he was part of the British invasion with his band, being the second group from the UK to have a number one hit after The Beatles. They had 10 other singles in the UK and US, top 20, so by no means a one-hit wonder. Now, Bruce Springsteen has publicly declared this band as his favourite British group of the 60s, and their best-known song is a classic rock anthem that regularly features on the best songs of all time lists conducted by various media outlets. I am, of course, talking about the animals, and my guest today is founding member John Steele. Now, I've been working closely with Tenacity PR, who have helped to organise the Great British Rhythm and Blues Festival, Rock, Roots and Folk. It's taking place this August, the bank holiday weekend, Friday 26th to Sunday 28th, and it's got a fantastic lineup of R&B, blues, folk acts. Now, there's a few people I've interviewed on the show in the past, including 10 Years After drummer Rick Lee. His band is going to be there. Rick Lee, of course, as part of 10 Years After, played Woodstock, legendary. Now, I recently interviewed Ray Laidlaw as well, the Linda's Farm drummer from the Glory Days. The current Lindisfarne lineup will also be there, along with AOR favourites FM. You've got Atomic Rooster with Pete French involved, who was part of Cactus as well. You've got Dr. Feelgood, Gino Washington, and a host of other great acts as well, including John Steele's The Animals and Friends. Now, for more details, check out colnbluesLineup.com or just Google Great British Rhythm and Blues Festival. You'll see all the information on there. But for this interview with John, then, as you'd expect, we're going to go through all of the big stuff for the animals and the mega hit House of the Rising Sun, but also about the incredible reception they received in America, influencing Bob Dylan, a crazy party with Herman's Hermits while on tour in the US, and a bust up with Nina Simone. Yes, it's all to be heard in this interview. So please enjoy this chat with John Steele from the legendary British group, The Animals. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to chat with you, John. Now, um, the Great British Rhythm and Blues Festival is taking place in Lancashire in August this year. Now, you're going to be part of a fantastic lineup. It's some fantastic names there. Are you looking forward to it? Oh, yeah. I've played it a few times in the past when uh, uh, our, our, our agent, Peter Bond, uh, organised the, the festival in past years. And um, now it's been like everything else. It's past two years and nothing's been happening. But it's good, it's good this year that it's uh, back again, you know, because it's always a good gig. Absolutely. Looking forward to that. And everyone can get their tickets now to see that. And they can also get their tickets to see you on tour. It's, it's the farewell tour that's been built. You've, you've done a few dates already, including one that's up my neck of the woods. I live in the Highlands of Scotland and you played up here near Elgin not too long ago. So oh, yeah. you've got some uh, gigs lined up for the rest of the year across the UK. You're going out to Europe as well. Um, yeah. I mean, you're 81 now, John. I mean, do you still yeah. enjoy being out in front of the crowds as much as you always did? I do. I love it. Yeah, yeah it's great fun. It, um, it, I, don't, I don't know what else I would do. <laughs> <laughs> and what sort of reaction do you get from, from the fans? And what kind of audience do you get nowadays? It's, it's mixed, really. Um, 
generally speaking, before the pandemic, um, we could always depend depend on the venue. You know, if it's theatres, we'd get a, a lot of, you know, older folks, but also a good sprinkling of young people. You know, if we're playing like blues clubs and um, festivals and things like that, it's, it's, it's a much younger uh, audience. But um, we seem to have this broad appeal to, to pretty much any generation, you know, because people um, who are far too young to, you know, remember the songs for the first time around, but they know all the words, you know, they, they, they pick up on the songs because they're such such strong songs with, that we recorded back then that uh, they really stood up all, all, this, all these years and they still stand up now, you know. Absolutely, and the band's name, and as you said, the songs themselves definitely do stand the test of time, and and that shows with the amount of countries that you're going to go to across Europe as well. Yeah, yeah, and Australia this year, later this year, bit of, of, bit of sunshine yeah. in uh, November. <laughs> <laughs> Can't blame you for that at all. Yeah. <laughs> now uh, let's go back to through the mists of time. Then, I mean, you met Eric Burden when you you guys were young. Were you you're fifteen? Yeah, you fifteen. Were, 15 there were, there were twists and turns there were, were lineup changes there was different names there was was different members all that sort of stuff styles of music and then the animals were born the first single you released baby let me take you home landed around the top 20 in the uk which is a fantastic achievement but let's be honest the song that came after it kind of changed everything for for not just you guys but for for music as well didn't it i mean we are obviously talking about house of the rising sun here yeah yeah, that was uh, that was a huge um, life changing thing. That I mean, the first single got us a tickle. It got us on radio play and a little bit of um, TV, and uh, it sort of we arrived in a way. But um, House of the Rising Sun just uh, took off and became number one in a short time, and then number one in the states, which was massive for us. Um, you know, from being a, a sort of five piece Jody working class lads suddenly flying off to to america it was like a, a dream because we you know everything that influenced us back in those days when we were kids and um, teenagers seemed to come from across the atlantic the blues jazz rock and roll books movies whatever so uh and you know you couldn't just fly off the way you do nowadays to go and have a holiday in florida it was like just a rich man's top you know it was like another planet in fact so to, to be to be able to sort of um arrive in New York with a, with a number one in the charts. It was fantastic. It's phenomenal indeed. Now, the song itself, it, like I said, it broke moulds, didn't it? Because at that time, you were looking at three minutes maximum, weren't you, to get any sort of play on the radio? But this was four and a half minutes, and it was a, the first yeah. folk rock song sort of thing to get to number one as well. You, you guys really did push the boundaries. It did, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure how conscious of it we were at the time. I mean, when we recorded it, um, that was the first thing that um, the guy on the desk, the engineer, said, You'll never get that played on the on the BBC because it's four minutes thirty five seconds or whatever. You know, like you said, two two and a half three minutes was the maximum for a single in those days, and that was that was the historic thing going back to seventy eight revolution seventy eight RPM records where that was all you could get on the record. You know, so that broke that mold. Uh, as you say, first crossover folk rock thing. Um, it also influenced Bob Dylan, changed his direction. Yes. Because we met him in New York um, a little later, and he'd just been in the studio recording his first electric folk rock stuff, because he was purely acoustic before that, you know. And he said he'd been driving his car and uh, listening to the radio, and he heard our version of House of Rising Sun, and, and he had a light bulb boom, and thought, that's the way to go. 
<laughs> we had a good night out with him as well. Pub crawl around Greenwich Village. <laughs> I bet you did. <laughs> Tell us about that meeting. I was going to bring that up a bit later, but let's talk about that now because um, you guys were obviously big fans of Bob, um, and I think yeah. you, you kind of orchestrated a meeting while you're in New York to to go and to go and meet him. And the recording right. that you're talking about, I mean, it wasn't just any recording. It was it was a huge song of his as well, wasn't it? Oh yeah, yeah, and. Um, yeah, we were big fans of Dylan from the from from, from the start, from the first uh, album. In fact, that was an influence on the first single we did, which was "Baby, Let Me Take You Home." Mm-hmm. Mickey Most, the producer, pre- presented us with this record and said, "I think this will be a do you you know be a hit." And uh, we thought it was a bit a little bit middle of the road, you know, a bit a bit poppy for us. Mm-hmm. But then we realised it was uh, almost identical to a song in Bob Dylan's first album, which is "Baby, Let Me Kind of Kind of Carry You Down" or something like that. Very, very much the same. We thought, well, if it's good enough for Bob Dylan, it'll do for us, you know. That's why that's that's why we went with, went with that song. And then, then, of course, the second song, House of Ryan Stone, we just nicked that from his the same album, you know. <laughs> this is his acoustic version. We just loved the song, so we just kind of kicked it around until we came up with it an arrangement that kind of fitted our style, even. Phenomenal. And you, you talk about fitting your style because the arrangement that you did come up with, the feel, the tempo, the, the, the Eric's vocals on it, everything combined to make magic. Now, can you remember the, the roots of, of choosing that song and deciding to go down that path? Can you remember how the recording sessions went and the arranging and everything went for that song? Yeah, um, we, 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 we rehearsed it in the Club of Gogo in Newcastle, um, uh, first of all, and... Um, Funnily enough, although Alan gets the credit for the for the arrangement, he um you know Alan plays the keyboard player. Um, <laughs> we had a little bit of a ruck about it because um, Hilton Valentine had come up with this arpeggio introduction, you know, and uh, yes. Alan got very huffy about that. He thought we should it should have been a sort of strummed acoustic thing, the same as the, the Dylan thing. He went off in a bit of a huff, and um, when he came back, we'd already finished, we you know, sorting the, the our parts out. And then he, he more or less just came back in over his hoof and played that amazing solo, you know. <laughs> and that was that was the arrangement. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. I mean, Hilton's incredible intro is is one of the most iconic things in music. And to think that if Alan would have had his way, that we would never have got that's that. That's right, yeah. Um, and um, when we did record it, it, it was mainly Jazz's um, uh, encouragement that but he, he, we were on the... First Chuck Berry tour, the first time Chuck Berry came to the UK, okay. and we we got booked to support yeah, yeah. among other bands, you know. And uh, Chaz said, you know, everybody's going to be playing rock and roll. Chuck Berry, Carl Perkins, yeah, um, King Size Taylor, and the Dominoes, the Natural Teens, blah blah. They were all on the tour, and he said, um, this song is a complete contrast. We should we should make a feature of it, you know. He must have had his business head even then, back you know before he became a manager and producer. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and that's what we did, and that's what we got. It's this amazing reaction. Um, you could feel it. So, um, right in the middle of the tour, we uh, we we got making most to fix it a, a session in in London in this where we did the first single, just a little basic underground studio. No no tricks, no no. It was just a mono, you know. <laughs> what do you call it? A single track yes, thing. Yeah. Um, we went in there and done. Um, in between Liverpool and Southampton in the middle of the night and set up, got some balance, played it through and once, we just played played it through the one time 
And Miggy said, come in and listen to this, you know, and, and we trooped in the control room and that's when he said, uh, I think we've got to hit, hit single here, you know. Phenomenal. That's when the uh, engineer said, <laughs> it's too long. <laughs> yeah, but it was it was all done in one take. Wow. I love hearing stuff like that. It's phenomenal. Um, I, I can show you something. I yes, can, I can show it. you something. This, um, I, I, got, I was digging out some references for some, something else. I wrote, a, there's a copy of a letter I wrote to my girlfriend at the time. Oh, wow. Uh, and and um, it was written a couple of days after the after recording. And I said, um, I told you about Ready, Steady, Go. It's, it's something like a Ray Charles talking about you. This was going to be a, a sort of thing we did for Ready, Steady, Go. And the other side is Rising Sun. It's going to be a double A side, both sides. Uh, A-sides. The Rising Sun sounds great. We did it in one take. <laughs> that was written two days after the recording. Wow. That's phenomenal. It's phenomenal you've still got that copy. You kept all the letters. <laughs> we got married after that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Incredible stuff. Um, now, in, in terms of being here in the UK, I mean, your music at the time, it was different. It was it was it had a darker edge to it, didn't it? So yeah, your audience over here were, were mostly guys, weren't it? Mostly fellas. But yeah. as you said, you went over to America. It was completely different for oh, you. Yeah. It was a different audience altogether. Teeny bobbers. That's what they call them then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly right. I mean, everywhere we played in Europe um, up, up until then, we generally we were a guys band, you know. And then, as I said, you know, we just got mobbed by um, young teenage girls. <laughs> we just kind of freaked us out a bit, you know, because we weren't used to that. Um, <laughs> but we, we got used to it all right. It's um, it was just a different different scene as, in the states, and that. Um, yeah, I bet. And that, uh, like, like we did things like the Ed Sullivan shows that did that several times. That, that had an audience of millions every every week, twenty five million I think was average for them. <laughs> we did another show called The Hullabaloo, which had Sammy Davis Jr. as uh, the the uh, the, co the host. That was a lot of fun. Wow. He's a funny guy, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we, we got a lot of television in the states, and um, you know a lot of uh, big following. We still have now, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> Did you come out of the Ed Sullivan show with with ringing in your ears from all the screaming? Uh, I've still got ringing in my ears, you know. I got <laughs> <laughs> like most drummers, I've got tinnitus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and what about the the famous story of of when you arrived in New York for that Ed Sullivan performance, and you, and you almost had like the arrival of a, a traveling dignitary or head of state, didn't you? Because it was a motorcade that drove you through the streets. That's right. Uh, what was that like? What do you remember of that? Oh, I remember it very well because it was um it was a stunt that was dreamed of by the, the record label, you know, to, to promote the first time in the in the states, and there was a, a British. Um, Sports car by a company called Triumph, and it was uh, it was a popular car in the in the UK. Triumph Spitfire, I think it was called, but in the states they called it the Triumph Tiger. So some piano guy got the oh a tiger animals. <laughs> so uh, um, we have, we we got this huge um, press reception when we when we landed, screaming kids all over the place on the roofs and things, and then uh, they took us down and there's five of these two seater sports cars lined up over top. And each one of us had a, a six foot model with um, fishnet nylon, fishnet stuff, stuff with a big basque whiskers and a tiger's tail. <laughs> oh, <my laughs> and uh, we sat up on the back seat of the car with a, with a driver, each of us, 
um, with our arm around this model and took off towards Manhattan with a motorcycle escort, you know, wailing sirens. It was hilarious. <laughs> oh, my word. A bunch of guys from, from the Northeast, a bunch of Geordies, and yeah. you're getting receptions like that in New York. I mean, let, let's let's be honest, um, the UK in the 60s was a dark place at times, wasn't it? It's pretty gloomy, and then you go across and you get that. I mean, how were you feeling at that time? Oh, it was ridiculous. I mean, there's, there's some footage you can find on, on YouTube of that, of that whole thing, and um, it just seems we were all looking at each other, you know, in this <laughs> convoy, and they're turning around and going, what? What's going on, you know? <laughs> and arrived in <laughs> arrived in our hotel in downtown Manhattan with kids all over the all over the sidewalk screaming and shouting and, and mobbing us and it was good fun. Absolutely good fun indeed. Now, um, obviously the British invasion was huge and you were the the second British band at well at the, just after the Beatles, weren't you to have the number one in the, in America? Yeah. Now there was a lot of bands that went over and did the sort of stuff. I've spoke to many as well that have, have been over there. Colin Blonstone and and Kenny and Rick Lee and and. John Lodge from the Moody Blues and all these sorts of people. I mean, you went over there. A lot of bands were over there from the UK. Did you manage to brush shoulders with them, or was it literally ships in the night passing? You maybe see them at an airport or a, or a live gig or something like that. What, what was that like? Yeah, pretty much like that. Um, there was one one occasion when we met up with the um, Hermits Hermits um, in Los Angeles, and um, they were there to do a, either recording or a movie or something. I can't remember what. And um, they had uh, rented the house that um, used to be owned by Cary Grant, you know, the film, film star. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so we, uh, we had a, a party there one night, um, and it had, like, uh, loads of glass out onto a pool, you know. And <laughs> um, I, I, was, um, I was drinking vodka and tonic, and I, I thought I was drinking vodka and tonic, but it turned out I was drinking vodka and Bacardi. I was talking to... <laughs> <laughs> and much vodka up with, with my <laughs> So I passed out and fell off my stool. And then um <laughs> and then I woke up um just as I hit the water because they stretched me out on the on the diving board, fully clothed, you know. And I'd rolled over in my sleep and pushed into the pool. <laughs> so that was uh, that was one one of the rare kind of uh, get togethers with with members of the British people, you know, but mostly it was just sort of, hey, how are you doing? And we did a TV studio and that yeah. kind of thing, you know. Phenomenal stuff and the phenomenal success that you had within the band. It's, it really is incredible. And another big name to throw out there, I mean, Bruce Springsteen saying that, he, that you guys were his favourite band of the 60s. And when you think of the, the bands that were around, the Yardbirds and the Beatles and Cream and the Stones, I mean, that must have been yeah. an incredible feeling to hear someone like that say that about you guys. It was, it was, uh, that was very... Very generous of him, and um, he, he did a whole tour a few short years ago. With um, every night, he said that to the audience. You know, this you know, uh, misunderstood. Don't let me be misunderstood. It's my life, and uh, we got to get out of this place. He says that's my whole repertoire. Every song I write is based on those three songs. You know, by the animals. Go, wow. <laughs> How bad is that? Not bad at all. Now, I've got a couple of questions as well from my listeners. I put it out to my uh, my newsletter to see if there's any questions for you. And um, I've got one here from Vries Hagen, who I believe is in Holland. He says, my favourite song by the animals is Please Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood, which is very different to the Nina Simone version. How did the band decide what songs to record? Uh, quite often it was Mickey Most um, would, would make occasional trips to, to New York, the, the, the famous Brill building where all the songwriters... Uh, it was like a factory, a song factory, you know, and come back with um, test pressings of uh, songs for... They, they just used to write songs for other people, you know, mainly. 
But, you know, Carol King was one of those songs. Neil Sadaga, Carol Goffin and King, uh, Man and Wheel, Barry Man, Cynthia Wheel. They just used to churn out songs and uh, for everybody. So um, it was one of those. Uh, um, I can't remember who... Who brought us that song? We didn't. We didn't. We, we weren't aware of Nina Simone's uh, version of it at the time, but, um, so we just did our our own arrangement of it, you know. And then we had a bit of a spat with Nina later, later on when um, we were in a, on a TV show with her, and uh, she was um, she was a pretty angry woman. Uh, wow, stroppy. <laughs> she had a right go at us for being, you know. Little white boys pinching my song, you know. And Eric said, "Not your song. You didn't write it. It's Benny Benjamin wrote the song, you know. I mean, we just did a version of it." She was really snot, snapping and snarling. She was, you know. But wow. Eric, uh, Eric stood his ground, and um, we had a bigger hit with it, you know, <laughs> in, the, in the in the short term, you know, and chart wise. I mean, she, she's her versions never never got tired ever, you know. It's a brilliant version. My daughter's favorite version of it is Nina Simone. <laughs> <laughs> she, she always said, you did that too fast, you know. You need a Simone to get a better version, you know. <laughs> Where's the loyalty? Where's the loyalty, eh? <laughs> um, so just just following up on that question there from Vries, um, when Mickey came back with songs or whenever these songs came towards you, did you guys then sit and, 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 and go through the songs perhaps and then work out which ones to do and which ones not to do? Yeah, um, we, we, we had the sort of, we had the right to refuse, you know. When Mickey, Mickey would suggest this stuff away. If we didn't like it, we didn't do it. So simple as that, you know. But half the time when we went into the studio, it would be the first time we played it. So <laughs> 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 and then and while while we're in recording whatever a single in a B side, we'd would usually knock off a few other tracks as well for a um that would turn up on an album a little bit later, you know. Uh, we, we did everything see the pants, you know. It was because uh, we we were so together with each other. We, we, it was almost like um, telepathy, you know. Uh, so what, what, we just listen to a record once, and we go and, and knock it out with our uh, with our own twist to it, you know. Wow, phenomenal stuff! <laughs> uh, and another question here from uh, DK Rayner. He says, "Do you ever look back and wish that you'd stayed together as a band longer, given the continued success of the likes of the Beatles and the Stones, and given where the animals were at that point?" Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's an interesting thought. So it's more complicated than that, isn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, I don't believe too much in uh, what if, 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 you know, if only we'd done this or what if we'd done that, blah, blah, blah. It's what happens, you know, so you just get up and get on with it. Absolutely. <laughs> well, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, John. We look forward to uh, catching you on tour and I hope everyone gets their tickets to see you guys on your farewell tour. Farewell tour and um, I hope that we get to it's see you It's going to be a long well. farewell tour, Paul. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I've got two years to make up for <laughs> from this pandemic. <laughs> absolutely, indeed. And we'll hopefully catch you as well at the, uh, the Great British uh, Blues Festival as well in the summer. Looking forward to that. The brilliant John Steele there. Fantastic stories indeed. Definitely do check out the Animals and Friends if they're touring near you. They came up here to the Highlands of Scotland not long ago as well. Fantastic stuff. Definitely check them out if you get a chance to. Please do. Right now, it's the time of the show for my top fives. And of course, this week, I'm going to give you my favourite five songs from The Animals. But first, some of your comments from last week's top five in excess songs. Uh, let's start with Patrick O'Brien. He said uh, Taste It was his choice, but that the 12-inch version of Suicide Side Blonde is fantastic. I just remember the days of the 12-inch record. Kids wouldn't have a clue these days, would they? 
It's fantastic, even just to say it. Um, Toby Williams said Devil Inside was his favourite, while Joey Michaud agreed with my top three and then also included Devil Inside and Never Tear Us Apart. Over on Twitter, Joe from uh, Play That Rock and Roll, he had Listen Like Thieves as his number one in excess song and also included in his top five Pretty Vegas, a track from the post-Michael Hutchins era. Now, uh, Joe said he watched the TV show Rockstar in Excess when he was in high school and in Excess was one of his first concerts he went to, so he really enjoyed the album they did with JD Fortune as a frontman. Prime Mover Media, they threw up a couple of different tracks in their selection, Original Sin and The One Thing, while Analog Smile had a really diverse selection from their five, which included The Stairs, I Send a Message and Doctor. Love those shouts. And I'll say it now, if you haven't checked out episode 62 with NXS's Andrew Farris, now he was the main songwriter in the band, then please, please go back and do so. Anyway, let's get to the animals then. Remember, this is my personal choice. It's highly subjective. I don't expect you to agree. In fact, I'd love to hear how you disagree. So please reach out with your own tops five this week and I'll uh, give you a mention on next week's programme. So here you go. My top five animal songs according to Vintage Rock Pod. At five is a track that wasn't originally on an album, I don't think, but it was a big hit. One of their many top ten hits here in the UK. Hilton Valentine's distinctive picking style was very evident, as was Eric's low gravelly vocals in the opening, building to a big chorus refrain. At five is It's My Life. At four is one of their signature songs, and one that got them into a little spat with Nina Simone from the album Animal Tracks. At four, it's Please Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood. I'm just a song whose intentions are good. Oh Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood. At three is another song from the Animal Tracks album and another big hit. It builds beautifully, as many of their songs did, and was a big hit with the US armed forces in Vietnam. At three is We Gotta Get Out of This Place. is their lead single from their 1966 album Animalization. It's a rip-roaring song with so much energy and another great vocal from Eric Burden. And number two is Inside Looking Out. And at number one, well, not much of a surprise, really, because it's one of the all-time greats, instantly recognisable from the very first second. Their version of this traditional song was a massive hit worldwide and remains hugely popular today. No more needs to be said. The number one animal song on my list is, of course, House of the Rising Sun. So 
there you go, my top five songs from The Animals. As I said, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this list. Where do you agree or disagree? Let me know. Email vintagerockpod at gmail.com or you can catch me on any of the social media platforms. I do hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, please hit subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening to this on so you don't miss any more future episodes, especially the new This Day Rocks episodes, which head your way every single day. Just to give you a short snippet, a little five-minute burst of classic rock goodness. It's been met with great reception, so thank you to everyone who's reached out these last couple of weeks about these new shows. Also, please do check out Vintage Rock Pod on the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Give us a like, a follow. It would be most appreciated. Well, that's it for me then on this episode. I'll be back tomorrow with another This Day Rocks and a big interview for you next week with another act who's playing at the Great British Rhythm and Blues Festival. Until then, though, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of rock, just tell them my music is better than yours. Take care. <laughs>